What's up? What's up? Welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. If you're a fan of the classics, we have an interview for you today. One of our listeners, Harrison Wong, thank you so much for the recommendation. Not only the recommendation, but also coordinated all of the logistics behind the scenes for a long time over this interview uh, with Elisa Weilerstein, who is one of the most foremost cellists of our time. Uh, and so if you are a fan of classical music, and there are a number of people with diabetes who are extremely high level of classical musicians. And Elisa is one of those. And we talk, we have a really good interview. We had a long conversation about what it's like to be diagnosed with diabetes at a young age, uh, what it's like to prepare and travel for a solo performance in many cases. And, you know, Elisa was very open with like most of her performances are by herself on a stage. And so her particular strategies for getting ready for those performances, you know, take into account travel, they take into account stress, they take into account a long piece uh, of music that she might be playing over a, a number of hours uh, and how she keeps her blood sugars in range so that she can be the best version of herself she can be on stage. I thought it was super relatable. Uh, and we also talk about um, something in common uh, that, that Elisa and I have in common. There's like very few things. Like number one is diabetes, but number two, uh, <laughs> I used to play a guitar shocker, uh, a teenage white guy I, playing guitar. Oh, right? the, the yeah. songs that you wrote on YouTube and stuff. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. There's some songs on mine on YouTube. Gross. Uh, cringe alert. Uh, but, uh, I, I stopped testing my left hand fingers when I, uh, because it would break up my calluses and sometimes cause like a weird hum or buzz when I would play strings. And I asked her on the podcast, uh, if she did that as well. And she does. So she does not test on her on her string hand. So wow. uh, she, when she plays cello, she tests on her bow hand only. So that was a really cool kind of thing that like insider baseball, like talking about, you know, diabetes with somebody who uh, is truly uh, one of the best at her craft uh, on this planet earth. So really, really exciting stuff. She sounds like she's an athlete, like preparation, planning, like got to make sure you're good. Also, I guess, and uh spoiler, I'm not a part of this episode, but I guess one of my first questions comes to mind is like you're playing a really important piece or like you're doing a concert in front of like thousands of people and like you're low now what like that's yep. just something that I guess I'd never even considered for musicians or and even you know, just we think like about it for athletes but you know you yeah. think about like or, like being sweaty and like how that could affect your fingers mm. and your finger position and when you're playing music at that level every note has to be exactly on point and on tone and on rhythm so um, you know it's really a science. And like you said, very similar to some of our high level athletes, uh, who have been on the show, uh, as well. So I think a really interesting twist on a really common thing that we talk about, about preparation, taking steps, uh, travel, uh, Elisa also talks about, you know, her parents are both musicians as well, uh, classical musicians. Oh. So she grew up in a house where practice and repetition was a consistent part of her life. Uh, and so that routine, uh, I think she talks specifically about getting used to with diabetes at a young age, uh, served her really well long-term. So some really good uh, notes in this interview and uh, really thankful for Elisa and her time, uh, obviously uh, with her demanding schedule uh, and as well as like life and family, uh, just very giving of, of about an hour of her time. So after this word from our sponsors, I'd like to make some time and some space for the great Elisa. <clears throat> so after this word from our sponsors, I give you the great Elisa Weilerstein. What's up, guys? I got a very important announcement for you today. Not only is this episode sponsored by Type Zero Health, but Type Zero is now our official fitness partner of Diabetics Doing Things. And that's exciting for me, because if you can hear, 
I'm actually mixing up some type zero NO booster in my shaker cup right now because I'm about to go work out like I normally do late in the day. And what I want to tell you first about type zero is that for people with diabetes, you can get the boost and the pump you need to crush your workout without having to worry about spiking your blood sugar because type zero's NO booster is clean. It's caffeine free. It uses natural ingredients, no artificial flavors or colors. And it doesn't spike your blood sugar, but it gets you the pump you need. It also doesn't have caffeine. So I can have it later in the day, like I am right now. It's about 5.30. I've just gotten through my workday and I'm about to go hit the gym. I use it when I play basketball, when I go on a run, when I hit the weight room, which I've been doing a lot lately. And I've been using it to help me shift into workout mode while I'm at home. I get that shaker cup going, mix it up. I'm using the cherry limeade flavor right now. You got to check it out. Type0health.com for more information. If you use type0health.com, use code Rob Howe. That's my name, Rob Howe. No spaces at checkout and you can get 20% off. Type0 is a T1D owned business and you know how I love T1D owned businesses. Check out episode 132 for my interview with the founder of Type0, John Jensen. You can hear his story there. Also check out Type Zero's Clean Nitric Oxide Supplement. I've been taking it for a few weeks now and it has really powered my recovery. Again, no caffeine, just beetroot, pine bark, arginine, and citrulline, which are natural ingredients. It helps me recover, which is a big part of how I implement my training these days. I've gotta be able to recover. I take on a lot of mental, non-physical strain and then with my workout schedule, it's hard for me to recover and bounce back. And this has really helped me. I even left a review on Amazon with a photo of my whoop strap where it shows month over month how my recovery increased after I introduced the clean nitric oxide supplement. So check that out. Again, typezerohealth.com, the official fitness partner of Diabetics Doing Things and use code Rob Howe for 20% off at checkout. All right, back to the episode. Okay, well then here we go. Welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes from all over the world. And my very special guest today, Elisa Weilerstein. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. And uh, Elisa, you're calling from Montreal today. So we've got our sort of around the world. We're extending those, those international borders yet again on the podcast. Uh, you have lived with diabetes for going on about 30 years. If I, uh, if I, my research has paid off right. correctly. You're you did your homework. Yeah. 29 and a half to be 29 and a half. Uh, March 1st, 1992 is my, is my day of diagnosis. Oh, wow. So you remember your date as well. I, uh, mine was about 13 years later, January 1st, 2005. So a couple of first days of the month, uh, for both of us. January 1st. Wow. That's a new year's day present. Isn't it? Happy new year. Indeed. <laughs> um, yeah. so what do you remember about those early years, uh, or, or, you know, those, those first few months or that diagnosis month, uh, you know, from your youth? I mean, I was, it was the month before my 10th birthday. Um, I remember, I mean, the, the first day, I mean, of course, I, I'm sure you probably share that experience. I mean, it just, it just this shock and kind of an overwhelming amount of information. And like, um, and, and, and the funny thing is that what I couldn't quite understand, what I couldn't grasp was that I wasn't feeling bad. And yet suddenly I was on a hospital stretcher with a you know bunch of IVs and my blood sugar was 464, which was a number, of course, I didn't understand. And um, it's just it, it was just a bunch of information that was thrown at me, of course, uh, that I, I, just, I just didn't understand. And, just, and, and so the, my only feeling was um, my body was fine yesterday and now it's not. And why is that? And so I what was very important for me and I'm sure for a lot of kids who are newly diagnosed is to understand why and to understand what is happening. And so that, um, so at the time, I don't know what they do now. Um, but 
it was a kind of uh, because at the time that was considered catching it relatively early. I was not throwing that many. I was beginning to throw some urine ketones, but I was not in ketoacidosis or anything like that. Um, and so uh, I was in the hospital, though, for about a week because of the serious amount of information and education that we needed to have. And this was 1992. So that's, of course, the year that the DCCT trials came out with their results, which definitively proved that uh, with good control, with, with tight control under the A1C under 7%, that you could, you know, you, you had a uh, much lower chance of getting um, complications. And so that was a very hopeful time. And so the doctors were very, were great. And they emphasized that very strongly to my parents, who of course were, you know, I imagine freaking out. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure. Just, yeah, because, you know, you just don't know um, when, when suddenly this happens and, you know, your, your kid is suddenly, you know, poked with a bunch of needles. and Of course. And I think it's, a, it's such a stressful time for, for all it's very stressful, yeah. parents and caregivers, right? But yeah. Uh, it's, it sounds like you were, at least in your immediate family, the only person who lives with diabetes. That's right. Um, I have a cousin, actually, who got it at age 23. She's now she's now in her mid-40s, and she's doing very well. So, um, But she got it, actually, she's six years older than I am, so uh, she was, I, I don't know, She I, I was already a teenager when she got it, and so she was actually taking advice from me um, at the time that she, that, that she was diagnosed, so. Oh, wow. So you, you two are really the trailblazers with diabetes in, in your family for doing all the hard, uh, such as, such as it is. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. Uh, well let's back up a little bit to your professional career, because I think that's, that's a big, a big reason. And I have to, uh, give Harrison, uh, who has recommended you for the podcast and really helped coordinate this interview, uh, credit, but, uh, you are a classical cellist and, you know, for those of us li like me, it may surprise some of our listeners to, to know that I'm not a huge orchestra head. I, I'm not I'm not deeply plugged into uh, the orchestra community. But what do we know? What do we need to know about the music that you uh, that you participate in and play in? Because as you do a couple of Google searches, there's some really profound and iconic pieces that you uh, you know take part in on a regular basis. Sure. Well, um, there are many ways to be a classical, you know, quote unquote classical musician. Um, I, uh, of course. I mean, if we want to get technical about it, I mean, classical actually just refers to a period of time. So that's be between, you know, roughly 1720 to 1800. This is the classical era, um, more or less. Um, so we, people who, who play what people call what, uh, let's say, Western classical music, and it's like Western concert music. So uh, music that you would hear in concerts that's, that's written by composers that range from generally speaking from the baroque period so like mid 1600s to now and there's plenty of contemporary classical music um around which is uh it, it's very I, it's funny i talk about this a lot because i play a lot of contemporary music too um there are a thousand different styles that people write in now whereas maybe 50 years ago the contemporary music of that time you had to write in an extremely dissonant very cerebral type of way to be taken seriously and now people write electronic music they write um, music that looks back at the past it's sort of easier to listen to more tonal uh more more melodic more more beautiful the quote unquote um and there are others that also write in that very sort of serial very cerebral style which is um more like a more like a puzzle let's say so um I like to play everything, uh, <laughs> meaning uh, I, I prefer wearing lots of different hats. So I play everything from Bach to um, Osvaldo Golihov, who is a um, Argentinian 
slash Eastern European Jewish uh, com uh, living composer who's one of the most um, important composers living today. And I and you should look him up because I think you'd like his music very much. So um, and, and you know and, and everything in between. So that's so that's what I like to do. And what um, I, I don't play in an orchestra. I play as soloist. So I play concertos with orchestra, which means that it, uh, which means that I play as a soloist with an orchestra accompanying me. Um, that's about. I don't know, 60% of my work, I'd say. Um, the other part is uh, solo recitals, which means that I play on a stage that I'm either by myself or I play with a pianist where we're collaborating. The other part is chamber music. So this is small ensembles, um, piano trios, string quartets, uh, that kind of stuff. And so, um, and I do this, um, I'd say I split my time between North America and Europe, uh, half and half with the um, every 18 months a tour to Asia. Of course, this is we're still in the pandemic and our industry was hit harder than harder than many. I mean, every industry was hit very, sure. very hard, but um, live music was one of the really big ones. And so, you know, we, we, we stayed at home more than I, I stayed at home, I think, more than. Uh, I have since I was 14 years old during this time. So. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna say, I imagine it was a huge yeah. lifestyle change uh, for you, for someone mm -hmm. who's been performing uh, live performance uh, day in and yeah. day out, uh, traveling, like you said, touring. Yep. Um, yeah. I, I saw, I as I was kind of researching for this interview, I I found a video on Carnegie Hall's YouTube where you were basically oh, yeah. perform, like performing from home. It was it was uh, live from Carnegie Hall. Was was the uh, was the program? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so, so there were a lot of people who did some amazing streams from home. Um, I, I think, you know, in the very beginning, when we thought we would only be shut down for, um, you know, for a few weeks, which is laughable now, of course. Sure. Um, I mean, I actually did a project called 36 Days of Bach, um, which, uh, I mean, there are six uh, suites for solo cello that, are, that were written by Johann Sebastian Bach, and they're very well known. And each suite has six movements. So I divided it literally into 36. So I did a movement per day, and then I would do at the end of every suite. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, I, at the end of every suite, I would um, do a Facebook live, uh, Facebook and Instagram live um, session, so that I would interact with people directly. Because, especially at that time in the very beginning, um, what I really wanted just to do was to to connect with with people in any way that I could. And I think a lot of people who our performers uh, felt this way um, because we're used to being in contact with so many people, even in in this sort of strange way from being on stage. Sure. Um, which isn't strange to us, it's just, it's normal for us. <laughs> uh, and and then as things got, you know, as we realized we were in it for the long haul, I mean, people people got really creative with technologies and, um, and lighting and um, really, um, you know, it, it's funny because a lot of um, musicians became sound engineers. I mean, they, they mm. got really into microphones and, and how to actually make their bedrooms sound like concert halls. Um, I didn't go that far with it. I'm not. I'm not such a techie, but um, I know a lot of friends of mine did, which was interesting. Yeah, it's it's been so cool to see like the different manifestations of like being from home and like creativity within those constraints, mm. right? So you know, people producing entire albums from their from their home, you know, and, and having to you know design yeah. a you know a room for for that. Uh, it's been very interesting. And I think like, you know, no matter what industry, like you said, everyone's been affected in some ways, some more than others. Um, and it's just, it's really interesting for me to see like how creativity manifests itself through different, you know, outputs, uh, whether it's music or art uh, or, or anything, uh, you know, otherwise exactly. it's very, very, very cool. You mentioned this a little bit already about your trio the, the, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Weilerstein trio. 
which you are in with your parents. So uh, music as a part of your family, like is that, that is like, what's it like to continue to be plugged in and have been plugged in with your family musically for, for all this time? Well, I mean, we're, we're still, we're very close um, as a family. We, we were in contact all the time, but um, we actually don't play together so much anymore. Uh, maybe, you know, once a year, once every two years or something that we actually play a concert. Um, everyone's really busy. My parents are both still so active um, teaching and I'm, you know, you know, finally back to running around as, as I was before, which makes me very happy. Um, but, uh, you know, I grew up in a musical home. I was uh, my, as you mentioned, my, my, my mother's pianist, my father's a violinist, and they were just rehearsing and practicing constantly in the house when I was growing up. And so, um, you know, it, it was it was a total immersion environment, which just kind of evolved, I'd say. What was that like from a diabetes perspective? Obviously, you talked about you know, going in the hospital and sort of getting the diabetes boot camp over the course of a week. And you know, I'm sure both of your parents were very involved with that. How did that manifest yeah. itself when it came home? Uh, you know, how, how did your parents, especially at nine years old, you know, you're doing a lot of things yourself, but you still rely on your yeah. parents a great deal. So how did that manifest yeah. itself for your, your life, at, you know, before you sort of became an adult? I wanted to be as independent as possible. Although, of course, as you said, I mean, it's that that isn't really possible when you're nine, ten years old. You have to, you know, work as a team. And I'd say uh, my parents were, were very good about that. Um, not not overly helicopterish, um, but we we had the same goals. I mean, I was um, I was already quite serious with the cello, which perhaps. Uh, made me more disciplined in general with um, with dealing with the diabetes, and I and I also, and I credit my doctors with this also that they educated us from the very beginning. Said, you can live your life if you control your blood sugar. Mm. So it was always like, well, I I don't um, I had no reason to not want to control the blood sugar because it was I mean it was a big motivating factor. If I wanted to live my life and to do the things I wanted to do, I had to you know, I had to be vigilant. Of course you know, try telling that to a hungry 11 year old who wants to eat birthday cake at a, you know, at a birthday party. I, so I think that make that, adjustments, I guess, you know, that framing is so important, especially like from person to person, because, uh, yes. you know, I'll, even at nine years old, it seems like you embodied a soloist, you know, you wanted to be independent, you wanted to do, yeah. you know, do your things and ha and you had a, a discipline that maybe many nine-year-olds do not have. Uh, but mm -hmm. that framework was very similar to what my doctors told me, which was kind of filtering everything through, uh, a lens of like, if you, if you want to be a basketball player, which in, in which case I did, uh, you can yeah, do that yeah. if you take care of your diabetes. So it's like using that as sort of That's fuel right. as like the, right. I mean, sort of the carrot. Yeah, you you can't you can't um, you can't play basketball if you're getting low blood sugar all the time. You can't play basketball at, at your best if you're running around at three hundred. Um, you know, it, I I can't be at my best if I get low on stage or am three hundred on stage. It's just it's not going to happen. So yep. I mean, it was kind of um, that that was a motivation in the beginning. Of course, I mean, if I think about the lack of technology that was around in the in the 90s. I mean, I, I didn't even have an insulin pump until I was 16, um, which, which means I'd had diabetes for about six years before um, before I wanted a pump. And, and I was on, you know, maybe two shots a day. I was testing, finger pricking four times a day, which at this time was considered a lot, um, which is hilarious to me now because right. even before the CGM, I started, I was testing, I don't know, 10 times a day, something like that to just because, um, as part of my uh, life, I have to travel so much and my days are so irregular. Um, 
you know, I, I was just kind of chasing the insulin all the time, chasing the, um, ch chasing the blood sugar. You know what I mean? Well, so sure. I, and I mean, the way I managed it was to test a lot. <laughs> and I think, you know, like you said, now it seems silly to go back and think that we only tested our blood sugar three to five times a day, uh, you know, because that was the quote unquote, uh, prescription level. And that now was, that was tight control recommendation. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, now, uh, so I, I guess, you know, let's talk a little bit about how you manage your diabetes today. What do you, you know, uh, yeah. whether that's CGM or pumping, like you mentioned. Um, and then I'd, I'd also, mm -hmm. you talked about, um, you know, preparing for a performance and, you know, uh, you're not going to be at your best if you're low or you're high while on stage. How do you, how do you get ready for a big performance or even just a regular performance? What's your routine look like? Um, well, I now have a CGM. I, and I, I just, I just got the T-Slim, uh, the, the tandem pump. So now they, you know, it, it's the smart-ish pump. I mean, of course it's not sure. as smart as, as we want it to be, but it's definitely smarter than it used to be. So that's, uh, it's a huge improvement over, over the dumb pumps that, that, that we had for so many years. Uh, but, um, so, so this has helped enormously. I have to say the, the, the CGM, especially that was the big game changer for me that, um, that I could just see how my blood sugar was trending all the time. And so, um, for example, I didn't, be, be, uh, pre CGM, I never like to go on stage below 130 because dropping low on stage, which could happen, especially because I mean, it's like exercise, you exert yourself. Sure. Um, dropping low on stage means you lose coordination. I mean, you, you know, even if I, if I'm like 65, I, I don't play as well. I, I mean, even though it's not, it's not dangerous or something, but I, I feel it and it's, and, and I don't feel good on stage. Um, so I wanted to give myself a threshold to drop to like you know, to 90 or something like that, which, which would be perfect. Um, with a CGM, I can, I can go much tighter, of course, because I can see that it's not just 130. And if it's 130 and dropping, I would, I would do something about it. If it's 130 and rising, obviously I, I might actually even take some insulin. Um, 130 and, and steady, I, I might just leave it, you know, and then sort of let, let things take their course. So, um, so, so, so that's kind of the difference and, uh, you know, knowledge is power with the, uh, with diabetes. And so, um, I, what, what I like to do in terms of preparation, um, sort of ritualistic things, I like to arrive to the concert hall at least an hour before to, um, just to slowly get into the concert gown to put my ducks in a row with the cello to make sure that the blood sugar is behaving. Um, I always, it, as part of my rider, I don't really have a big one, but I mean, um, I generally have a low carb diet, so, um, I'll make sure that there's some nuts backstage just to have as a kind of a protein source, um, protein and fat, just to make sure the blood sugar stays steady. And just in case, um, I obviously have glucose tablets, but I also like to have bananas backstage too. I, I, for, um, energy, yeah. I think you're the first, uh, you're the first person who's come on the podcast and admitted that there are low snacks in your writer, which is excellent. I love that. I think it's just the, the perfect <laughs> diabetes writer. You gotta have, gotta have some gummy bears or some nuts or yeah, something, something in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's, but, there, but there's a balance too, because I, you know, I am uh, of course very open about the fact that I have type one diabetes and I talk about it and everything. However, and I, I'm sure you probably go through this too. Sometimes uh, if you tell, you know, so somebody who's running an organization that you have type one diabetes, they get really scared. Um, and they, they act worried or concerned in a way that is sort of, um, 
invasive, I'd say, in, 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 in a sense and, and kind of not helpful. Um, I mean, it's it's. I'd say it's it's rare that um, that, that that people are, are like that still. But but that but those old attitudes, which are from I don't know the '80s or something like that, still exist. Well, I um, I think it's so much yeah. so much of that is is very. I, I try to remember because it does happen to me occasionally as well. Uh, not as yeah. much, but you know, people. I think fear of the unknown is is a big part of it. And yeah, I think about uh, so many people have come on this podcast and talked about when they were diagnosed, they had no idea they or their family members had no idea about diabetes. And it can be a little bit scary. And like you said, when someone's running an organization and they're trying to consider, you know, all of the you know potential things that could go wrong. Yep. So I try to give them a little bit of grace, but yeah, sometimes like they're trying to be overly helpful. And then it's just like, okay, this was, I should have never told you about this. <laughs> like, I just, I, I just need my banana and my, and the nuts. That's it. Just, that's it. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. We talked a little bit about, you know, testing your blood sugar, you know, before CGM eight to 10 times a day, uh, as a cellist, like your fingers are, are very, a huge part of your life and, uh, and your livelihood. And, um, so how did you manage like, and how do you manage finger sticks even today? Like with, you know, on your, on your cello hands, like, uh, you know, what, what is that like for you? And, and I, I, I found it, I remember early on when I was diagnosed, I was playing guitar a lot and my calluses would split open occasionally, uh, from, from the, uh, from the finger stick. So how do you, how do you deal with those things? I actually, um, I only use the bow hand. So and I never use this hand that, that's on the fingerboard. So um, I use these three fingers. These were the fingers that I put to death. It, it, it's so <laughs> funny. With the cello playing, so. I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that because I, so I also only test yeah. my, my right hand, which is like my strumming hand or picking hand. And, and I am no longer like an active, even really hobbyist guitar player, but I still in my head, like I don't test my left hand because it's like, oh, well, what if I want to play guitar this week? I don't want to have to deal with it. No, no, so. no, you, no, you shouldn't. There's no reason. There's no reason to, I mean, of course now with the CGMs, you hardly have to test anymore anyway, which yep. is great you know, just, just for calibrations occasionally, but I mean, you know, it's, and, it's, it's pretty, pretty nice not to have to prick, prick the finger anymore. And that was one thing I was thinking about for this interview as well, because we don't, I, I sort of take it for granted now. Uh, I really only calibrate twice a day, you know, sometimes like maybe four times is a large, you know, uh, a high testing day for me. Yeah. And I just, I was like, oh yeah, that's maybe that's why my fingers have improved. Like, I just don't have as many like, you know, pockmarks. It's just one of those things that you sort of right. forget. And, you know, thinking through people who are diagnosed with diabetes today may never know what it's like to test 10 times a day. And that, that is a, that's a big, a big win for those people. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, for, for, for kids now, it, it's really a different story. It really is. Um, yeah. so let's talk a little bit about um, you know, when you're on the road and when you're, you know, spending a lot of time, you know, traveling, um, how do you, you know, what are your sort of tips or essential kind of go-tos for when you're managing your diabetes on the road? Generally speaking, um, a low carb diet helps a lot. Um, just to, I mean, it's, um, I don't know if you've read this, it's, it's kind of, it's a bit of a, a bit extreme, but, uh, Dr. Bernstein's, um, diabetes solution. Yep. It's like I said, it's, it's extreme. It's not for everybody, but there's some good advice in there. Um, which is the, I mean, one of them is the law of small numbers. I mean, if you, if you're eating at constantly at restaurants, which is the issue for traveling is that you, you're, you're not cooking at home. You don't really know what's in the food. So there, there are, there are some meal choices, which, um, are easier than others where there's going to, there's less potential for there to be, um, you know, hidden cornstarch in a sauce that is going to send your blood sugar sky high or, um, or you know, eating at an Italian restaurant where you're going to have pizza, where you don't know what they've done with the dough and, and things like you can guesstimate, but it's um, but there's a lot of potential for errors. So I generally avoid 
anything high carb and um i generally um i've done very well with japanese food um which is very clean and delicious and i mean i could live on it just for the taste i think it's the best and like korean barbecue which i mean it has a little bit of sugar in the sauces but if you allow for for this it's still um you allow for that possibility it's still it's hard to mess up too badly basically and it's it's a lot of protein and vegetables and so that that that's kind of what i subsist on uh, most of the time uh protein and vegetables and some occasional fruits which are easy to count and uh and also just keeping you know watching the blood sugar like a hawk really and so uh, which is easy with it with the cgm and what i used to do was just test 10 times a day so, so. It, yeah it's, it's so much easier now to look at and for me even like performance wise you're able to see what your yeah. blood sugar does during a performance now which you know the other thing which i found which i know other people do different things uh with jet lag which is a mm. problem uh well or let's say a challenge going um going across an ocean if you're dealing with five six hour uh different and and i and i actually live in california most of the time so um uh you know i can have a nine hour time difference if i'm going to europe and so um i actually change the clock on the pump i go cold turkey onto the new time i find that it, it, it might might mean that like a day or two is dicey but then after that you're set so and you mentioned this a little bit uh, earlier uh, about Dr. Bernstein's like the diabetes solution and, and how some people say it's a little yeah. bit rigid, um, yes. which I think is a fair critique and it's it's not for everyone. However, yeah. one of my favorite things about uh, the method is that he, uh, Dr. Bernstein uses it himself and he yes. is now in, in advanced age and living his life with diabetes. And I think that's such a great example of uh, it has you know, like you, an agency of 5.0 and, you know, yeah, and, like, you know ex exercises every day and like, you know, has sees patients and is, you know, in his eighties. And I, I just think of that as like a really rich, full life for a person with diabetes that did not exist prior to, you know, some of his work. And now, and now with technology, I think you're, it's a little bit easier to kind of pick and choose how you, what your lifestyle is like, but, exactly. um, exactly. you know, for 20 years ago or 40 years ago, when he first published his first study, he, it was truly breaking new ground. And I think now it's it just, really was. and in fact, when we, it, because, uh, my mother discovered it in, you know, 1993, 1994, and for a growing kid eating six grams of carb for breakfast is maybe not the greatest um you know what whatever but i mean but we took so much from it but it made our doctors very upset they were not into it at all like i had to actually change doctors he said well you know your controls a lot better but i don't do this so hmm. you know if it works great but find somebody else to see you <laughs> it was like that so but now of course it's uh it's much more accepted it is and i think like this <laughs> when people like innovation and this is like a very off topic, I suppose, but like innovation like that, I think initially is always regarded with some sort of healthy skepticism. And, and, you know, yeah. and I think especially in the scientific community, early innovation is often like regarded as heresy or, you know, as, as incorrect, you know? And so it's so interesting to see like as technology evolves and as time passes, looking back on some of these innovations that were sort of skimmed over or, uh, you know, not uh, regarded as not applicable to the general population now sort of being more widely accepted. It's really interesting uh, you know, to, to, to dig, yeah. dig into. Um, okay, so back to back to you, back to the back to the interview. Um, for you, as as you think back, you know, either recently or in your career thus far, uh, do you have a favorite moment performing on a stage, or a, a favorite, you know, a point, a moment in time that you can look back on and say, "Wow, this was, you know, truly a, a, an amazing experience." Um, 
it's very hard to pick one moment, but um, if I'm thinking of something of recent history, uh, uh, even though it feels like a long time ago because it was before the pandemic, but um, I played all six Bach suites in a concert uh, in, in one, so it was almost three hours program um, at the Elbphilharmonie in Hamburg. Um, so this is a, um, this is the same acoustician who did Walt Disney Concert Hall in, in LA. Um, it's an iconic building. Uh, I mean, just gorgeous to look out from the outside. I mean, it, it actually brought in millions more tourists to Hamburg, Germany, uh, to just, just, to, just because of, it was an architectural marvel. And also, you know, its construction was of course, uh, extended and delayed. And for years, I think it was supposed to open, I don't know, 2013 and it opened, I don't know, five years late, something like that. Um, but just to have the chance to do the complete Bach program there was, um, just incredibly special just, um, and, uh, kind of a rite of passage in a way. And so that's, so, so that's, that, that felt pretty great. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, looking back at, you know, at that, at your nine-year-old self being told by the doctors, Hey, you can do, you know, chase your dreams or you can do what you want if you take care of your diabetes. Uh, hearing those moments, I think is so important for, you know, parents and caregivers and also young people yes. to know that like yes. there, there really is something there on the other side. If, you know, if you're able to take yeah. care of yourself. Um, when, when you're in that hospital and hearing these things, it's, it's hard to imagine, but there absolutely is. And actually, I, I mean, we only talked about the first day when you, when, when you asked me about the, those first months, um, I would say the first month was hard because it was an adjustment. The first month, like the, those first 30 days, I also didn't feel very good because I wasn't used to having good blood sugar. So the body has to adjust. I mean, um, you know, if you're used to running so high, the body is not quite accustomed to it. Right. But then um, I had also lost a considerable amount of weight. I was never, I mean, I was always more muscular body type and I was really skinny. Um, and so I, I was a bit weak. And so then like just regaining strength and, uh, and, and everything, uh, was, you know, it's a process like having growing pains, um, and mentally adjusting to the new reality for the parents and, and, and the child is, is not easy. However, right after that life got pretty great, I have to say. And, um, I never doubted for a second that I would be able to do what I wanted to do because I integrated this very, very fast into my life, taking, I mean, at the time it was two injections a day and, um, and testing and, uh, understanding the blood sugar. And I talked about it with all of my friends. In fact, I even did a sort of class presentation on, on what it was like to live. With oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, because in a way, I mean, it was, well, I mean, let's face it, it sucks to have, have a di diagnosis like this and to have to integrate it into your life. But I, I thought, well, you know, if I resist it, it's going to be very hard. If I accept it, um, life is going to be much easier. Hmm. And so that was part of my process of accepting it into my life. That's powerful. I think, yeah. you know, and I, I'd be interested to see, I think you gave me an idea. I mean, I ask, you know, listeners of the podcast and, and folks on social media, you know, how did, how do they introduce their diabetes to their friends and to their classrooms? Because I'm sure there's been, uh, you know, many presentations like that sort of a show and tell of like, Hey, this is what I'm going through now and normalizing Absolutely. that with the class and the friends. Absolutely. And, um, I remember at the time I, I was in fourth grade or something. And so I, um, I took, and I would, you know, do my pre-lunch test. And of course, at that time you had to wait 45 seconds for the meter to click down. <laughs> and, um, 
I would always bring a friend with me to what, when, when, when I tested my blood sugar. That was important too. And I, you know, that I wouldn't have to be by myself to do it. It's so important to do that. And I think even for myself, it, you know, in the moment you're like, Hey, this is my friend and, and I'm going to go accompany them to test blood sugar. And people are curious, but I think those moments are important, but it's the moments that come after that for the person who tagged along, because it could be a decade later down the road when they see someone testing their blood sugar, they recognize it oh, yeah. and they say, Oh, my friend, my, yeah, my friend, Elisa had, you know, had diabetes I, for me, uh, one of my athletic trainers in college, um, he and I didn't, didn't really keep in touch for, for a number of years. And, and we were able to reconnect recently and he was saying, Hey, I uh, just wanted to thank you. I've had five athletes with diabetes, uh, in the past decade. Uh, and because of our work together back, you know, way back when very early on, we've been able to, you know, manage and, and help, you know, parents feel a little bit more comfortable, help the athletes feel more comfortable. It's, it's really powerful. Yeah. Um, okay. So kind of the, the, the sort of wrapping up the interview sort of question here, um, is there any advice that you'd go back and give your 10 year old self if you were able to have a conversation with, you know, yourself in that first year of being diagnosed with diabetes, what advice would you give your younger self? Accept the card, you, the card you've been dealt and do the best you can with it. Do you feel like there were, there were, that you struggled at times with, with acceptance? I have to say not when I was 10, I think I struggled with it later as a teenager, as a, as a college freshman, as a college freshman, my control was the worst. I mean, like I would say I was, I had, you know, marginal control. Like I, you know, I kept myself, you know, sort of okay. Um, so that I could kind of survive like that, but it, long-term it would have been a problem. And, um, it was also, you know, finally be, being out from my parents' roof and kind of seeing what boundaries I could push. And it, and it took a little while to come back and to really realize I was doing this for myself because I'm, you know, we're in this for the long haul. That's so, so that's um, so important to yeah. hear people like you say that. And, and I'll say it as well. My freshman and sophomore year of college were the worst my control ever was. I mean, and I think part of that is just, there's so much new going on in your life. You're changing as a person, yeah. you know, you're, no you're parents, going through you know? Yeah. There's nobody <laughs> to hold you accountable. And so that is super normal. Um, but I think a lot of parents and, and people with diabetes also, you know, carry a lot of burden about those, those years in their life. Uh, and they, they carry a lot of fear when, when they're going on yeah. transitioning from high school to college. Exactly. And I'm a parent myself now. I mean, I, I mean, she's not nearly in college yet. She's five, but I mean, and, and thank goodness she, she is, she has no sign of type one diabetes. Although of course, you know, you never know, um, down the line, what could happen. But, um, if I could give any advice to parents who are going through this, I mean, uh, it, it's funny how they, they say, well, uh, an adolescent or a very young adult might be, might sort of want to shut you out, but they always come back with the diabetes that will happen too. <laughs> yeah. They, they'll, they'll want to, you know, keep that close and kind of guard that, yeah. guard that diabetes. Yeah. And, you know, and, I think, and, and, and unfortunately it's, uh, it's very difficult. Of course, I can imagine for, for a parent to watch that and to worry, but, um, they'll come back. I think that's great advice. And, um, I think again, just kind of normalizing all of these things. And I, I love these, 
small conversations that I'm able to get into with amazing guests like you, because we can look at, we can talk about your performances uh, across the world. Sure. Uh, and, and we can talk about these, these big peak moments that are obviously like super interesting to, for people to listen to, but it's so important to, to hear about those. Like, Hey, it was difficult. I was a difficult person with diabetes when I was a teenager. That's the most relatable yeah. and normal thing. Yeah. Um, and everybody totally. goes through it. Yeah. Um, well, at least they Sorry, go ahead. I cut you off. No, I was just saying, I mean, it's a self-management uh, condition. And so, I mean, it's normal that, I mean, you're going to have your ups and downs and your times where you're a bit burned out and uh, less motivated than others. It's just, it's, um, it's part of it. It is. Uh, Alisa, th thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I know that you are that you are so busy, and and I appreciate uh, you know with the time zone coordination. And again, I got to give a big right. shout out to Harrison for for making this interview yes. uh, happen. Um, for those of us who want to keep track of you and and kind of uh, you know track your career, what what is the best way for us to do that? Uh, you can check my website, or which is alisawilersign.com, or you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook as well. So just look me up and you'll find me. <laughs> Perfect. And I'll, I'll uh, keep yeah. links uh, for everything here in the show notes, but, uh, Elisa, thank you so much for, for your time. And, uh, thank you for all that you do for people with diabetes and, uh, able to point to you as thank somebody you. who is, is truly living beyond, uh, their, their diagnosis. And, uh, thank you so much.